morning. Say good morning, saying welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church, but we're not here at Emmanuel Baptist Church this morning. Uh, my name is Kyle Fitzgerald, and I recognize a number of you. I've been here on a few occasions to have the privilege to preach the Word of God to you, and I want to thank you uh, for again inviting me back. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you, to worship with you, and to open up God's Word with you. Am I on? On? Is this okay? Just making sure I don't need to hit a button. Um, Emmanuel Baptist Church sends greetings to you all. We want you to know that we pray for you as a congregation regularly. Uh, we pray for your pastor, uh, Eric Myers. We pray that God would uh, bless you and that you would know his grace and his blessing and that he would uh, honor and own your labors in the gospel in this area in Roseville. And so we do, I do bring greetings with me from the whole, from the whole congregation. I don't think that came out of me. Um, whatever that was. Um, but I do want to thank you for having me this morning. And so please, uh, if you don't mind, let's read again the passage of scripture we've just read, and uh, we will pray and ask God's help. And so look with me, uh, either at your bulletin or in your Bibles, John chapter 1. And let us hear again the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word, and please bow with me, and let's pray and seek God's help. Our great God and Father, we do pray that you would come and minister to us this morning by your Holy Spirit. We recognize and admit our helplessness uh, apart from his special work in our hearts to believe your word and to mix what we hear with faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would come and dwell in our midst. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of your children to behold something of the glory of Christ from this passage. And, Father, we do pray for any who are here who are yet outside of Christ, who are still dead in their sins, and who have not trusted in the Savior, we pray, Father, by your Spirit, you would do your work of effectually and powerfully calling them and drawing them to believe in your Son, that they would be saved from their sins. Father, be with us and be honored in our midst this morning, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1958, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a very small uh, but profound book, which he provocatively named, Your God is Too Small. And in this book, he simply analyzes what were, in his day, common misconceptions of God, uh, views of God that limit him, that seek to box him in, uh, views of God that elevate one of his attributes over and against another, Views that in the end bury the God of the Bible. He analyzes the whole spectrum from the person who uh, understands God as nothing more than a benevolent grandfather looking down from heaven seeking to smile and, and pour blessings upon all mankind to the other end of the spectrum, the person who can hardly even bear to think of God. And they cower at the thought of God because they can't imagine him as anything other than an angry tyrant. In short, 
Philip's book sought to show people just how prone we are to misconstrue God, to recreate Him in our own categories, rather than let the Bible speak and give us our categories. Now, I don't endorse all the opinions uh, that J.B. Phillips put forth in his book, but I do share at least his overall sentiment that often our God, the way we think about, the way we relate to God is often far too small. And in particular, I think often our Jesus is far too small. I think the provocative question could rightly be posed to Christians living in our day, myself included, is your Jesus too small? Is your Jesus too domesticated? Is he only meek without at the same time being mighty? Is he all grace and forgiveness without at the same time being wrathful and just? Or another way we could ask the question is, is your infrastructure, in terms of the way you think about Jesus, strong enough to bear up the full weight of what Scripture says about him? Let me give just a couple examples. Do we relate to Jesus as the one who, as he was dying upon the cross at Calvary in weakness, he was at that same very moment upholding the entire universe by the word of his power, according to Hebrews 1.3. Is our Jesus who walked besides the Sea of Galilee and who sat around campfires with his disciples the same one who upon the Mount of Transfiguration peeled back his humanity, as it were, and flooded his disciples with divine glory? I fear that the Jesus of many sincere Christians, for various reasons, is far too small. Jesus is far too irrelevant in their life, far too packed away in a little compartment of their lives they call religion or they call church, and they're missing out on the glories and the joy of knowing this Jesus. The reason I picked this passage to preach on is because I'm convinced that the more it seems that days of adversity lie ahead for the church, the more our country uh, seems to continue to go headlong into immorality and rebellion against God, what the church needs more than anything is bigger views of Jesus. We don't need mainly programs in the church, but we simply need to know and love Jesus in all of his perfections. And that is actually why John tells us he wrote his gospel. Uh, If you, in chapter 20, at the end of his gospel, in verse 31, John says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, you may have life in his name. John wants to introduce us to Jesus. He wants us to see and behold Christ as he is in all of his glory and to trust him so that we would have life in his name. And so that's my goal for this sermon. Uh, This morning, what I hope to accomplish is I want us to simply see and behold Christ. And I've entitled this sermon, I'm not sure if it's on the bulletin or not, but I've entitled this sermon, Five Glimpses of Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see. And they're going to be but glimpses. Uh, In many ways, I feel totally inadequate to say anything that's going to even come close to doing justice uh, to the glorious things that are in these uh, verses. Because we are treading in John 1 in the Everest of Christology. You cannot go higher in Christology than John chapter 1. Right from the beginning, 
John wants, his, uh, wants Jesus' glory to shine and to color the entire rest of his gospel. And he wants us to know that this is the Jesus with whom we have to do. So I want us to see five things regarding Jesus from this passage, and we'll just move uh, through them, and I'll give you their uh, names as we get to, uh, get to them. But the first one is this, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Let that land upon you. He never had a beginning. Look at verse 1 with me. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, before we go any further, let me just stop us and and point us down to verse 14 so we uh, get clear in our minds who it is we're talking about here. Uh, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I tried to begin a Bible study teaching through the Gospel of John, and I should not have been teaching through the Gospel of John. I should have had someone sit me down and teach me through the Gospel of John. Um, But typically, as you know, Bible studies are supposed to bring more clarity to the Word of God and more clarity to the text than lack of clarity uh, and muddiness. But unfortunately, I think in this particular study of mine, people wound up much more confused than they were when they actually walked in the room until someone helpfully pointed out verse 14. We were standing or sitting, trying to figure out who is this word that John is talking about, and someone pointed out verse 14. Look at it with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When John speaks of the word in verse 1, and we'll get to why he calls him that in a, in a couple points. He is talking about the Son of God before he became incarnate, before he became a man. God the Father did not take upon himself human flesh and dwell amongst his people. Neither did God the Holy Spirit. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, took upon himself flesh. And John wants us to know very clearly that before Jesus came to earth, He pre-existed from all eternity. He says, in the beginning was. He does not say in the beginning he was made, but simply in the beginning he was. And the beginning that John is referring to can only be one beginning, the beginning of beginnings. The beginning of Genesis 1, which simply declares, in the beginning, God When nothing but God was, Jesus was. Let that land on you with fresh awe and glory. I think, I know for myself, we can often become so accustomed to these verses and we just read them so often and they just seem to become pretexts for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses who come to our door that we actually begin to lose some of the awe and the glory that these truths are meant to inspire in our hearts. I know I'm The children were just dismissed. I think there's still some children here. But this is so important for us to teach our kids, to give them this foundation that there was a time when they didn't exist. There was a time when mommy and daddy didn't exist. There was even a time when this whole world, as we know it, the dirt we're standing over, did not exist. But there was never a time when Jesus did not exist. That is so important for us to lay those foundations in our children when they're young. And you know what's amazing? Jesus himself was totally aware of this during his earthly ministry. He was, in his own consciousness, he knew 
that when he came into the world as a little baby, he knew that was not the beginning of his existence. I want to show you just one place in John where this is made plain. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Towards the very end of the chapter in verse 58. The context of John 8 is that Jesus is again, as he often did, he's disputing with the Pharisees. uh, And they think that they're being really good and nice sons of Abraham by resisting and rejecting Jesus's ministry. And so Jesus tells them that, you know what, actually, when Abraham saw my day, he didn't reject it, he rejoiced in it. And that causes the Pharisees to kind of sit up and take and look at Jesus and say, you're not even yet 50 years old. That's verse 57. And have you seen Abraham who lived hundreds of years ago? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 58. He says, before Abraham was, notice the past tense, before Abraham was, I am, present tense. That is an amazing statement. That is a verbatim quotation of the divine name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3, that God told Moses, this is the name by which I will be known. If you remember when Moses was frightened, God was sending him back to his people to save them out of of Egypt. Moses was frightened. He said, when they ask me who has sent me, what is the name I should tell them? Who is the God I should tell them has sent me? To which the Lord responded, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, Yes, in my humanity, I might only be somewhere around 30 30 years old, 33 years old, but I am the great eternal one. I am the great I am, the one who simply is in and of himself, the one who is uncreated, the one who never had a beginning. And you know how we know this is precisely what he was implying? By their response in verse 59. John says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. They were convinced Jesus is a blasphemer. And it would be blaspheme, uh, blaspheming if anyone else, any mere man, were to make the claim that I am the eternal one, but not for Jesus, because he's telling the truth. He was in the beginning. Turn back with me to John chapter 1. Notice the second thing that John tells us regarding Jesus. The second thing is this, Jesus is the exact image of the Father. Jesus is the exact image of the Father. I'm getting that from the word, word, and I said that we would come back and ask the question, John, why did you choose to call Jesus the word? And trust me when I tell you there is no shortage of opinions to that question. And if you want to go home and read a couple hundred books this week, this is a subject you could find that many books written on, on all sorts of different ideas on why exactly John chose to call Jesus the Word. But John is the only one to give Jesus this title, and he uses it in his gospel, in his epistles, and in the book of Revelation. And so we need to ask the question, John, why? Why did you choose to describe the pre-incarnate Jesus as the Word? I'll just give you one opinion that I don't agree with and I don't think is correct. Um, As you're probably maybe aware of, the Greek word behind our English word, word, is the word logos. You've probably heard about that. There's Bible software called logos. That's what it means. Um, And some have suggested that John was catering 
to his Greek audience. Now, in Greek philosophy, which I by no means claim to be even relatively an expert in or acquainted with, uh, apparently in Greek philosophy, this concept of logos, it was understood to be the reason or the logic or the order behind the world. Uh, Logos was seen to be the unifying principle of everything that is, if you will. And some think that John was kind of trying to bridge the gap between his Hebrew Old Testament and his Greek audience, and as if he's using it evangelistically, saying, so you know about the Logos, huh? Well, let me tell you about the real and the true Logos. I'm not persuaded of that. Uh, I think that's drawing too heavily on things that probably wouldn't have even been in John's mind. Uh, And I think there's an easier explanation, and one that is far more rooted in the Old Testament. And just as a, a, a rule of thumb, when you're reading parts of your Bible and things are not immediately apparent as to what, the, what it's saying, what it means, and you come across difficult things, a good place to start is to go to the Old Testament. And often you'll find a lot of help. Uh, don't go to your, when you're reading Revelation, don't go to your newspaper to try to figure out what John was writing. Go to the Old Testament to figure out what John was writing, because the Old Testament is the scriptures that the apostles had. It's the scriptures that they would have been immersed in as they walked and talked with Jesus, and Jesus taught them about the scriptures. Um, and so I think that's where John is drawing from in terms of when he gets this, uh, in terms of from where he gets his idea of the Word of God. Uh, we don't have time to draw all this out, and I don't think that this would be the appropriate time to even do it, but I'll just give you a couple of important hooks to hang your thoughts on uh, as we consider what John would have had in his mind from the Old Testament. Uh, but D.A. Carson, I think, gives uh, a helpful definition of what the Word of God represented in the Old Testament. D.A. Carson said that the Word of God is God's personal and powerful self-expression. In other words, the Word of God was essentially the revelation of God Himself. The Word of God is God revealing Himself. I'll give you one uh, passage. Psalm 107, verse 20. The context of this psalm, uh, or of this portion of the psalm, is that people were sick, people were dying. And verse 20 says this, God sent forth his word and healed them. You can even hear and get the idea from that uh, passage that in that instance, the word of God is this personal self-expression of God, in this case, to save, to bring salvation. He sent his word and healed them. And then we could further trace out, as the Old Testament unfolds and we get into the prophets, that the word of God begins to become personified. It begins to take on a sense in which it's its own person, as when we read often, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, as though it's its own person. And so all that to say that what would have been in John's mind when he thought of the word of God was he would have understood it to mean that it's God's personal self-expression of himself. The importance of that is that when John in John 1 calls Jesus the word, What he is saying is he's saying what he will make even more clear and more explicit as the gospel goes on when Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That is something that is explicit, and it's over and over John stresses in his gospel that to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And to receive Jesus is not only to receive Jesus, but he says it's to receive the one who sent him. Because Jesus is the final revelation of God to us. If you want to know who God is this morning, 
Look at Jesus. Jesus is the clearest expression of God himself that we have. As Hebrews 1 declares, he is the exact uh, image and representation of his character. If you look down even at verse 18 of John chapter 1, he makes this more explicit. In verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, that is the Father, the only God, that is the Son, who is at the Father's right hand, he has declared him. That Greek word could be translated, it's the word from which we get exegesis, could be translated declared. The Son has declared the Father because he is the final and the climactic revelation of God to the world. This is why cults, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, who say that we've received further revelation after Jesus, that we've received a prophet even after Jesus, they've missed the point. There is no one coming after Jesus. There is no final word that we should be awaiting coming from God. Jesus is the word. Jesus is truth incarnate. That's what he is. And we wouldn't want to miss from this verse the massive implications of our, for our doctrine of God. Namely, that we worship a triune God. Notice the words, the word was God. That is, the word shares the same divine essence, and yet the word was with God. There's distinction in person. They are one in one sense, and yet they are distinct and three in another sense. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit, though He's not explicitly mentioned here, is not the Son. And yet the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God, and yet there are are not three gods, but one God. And behold, brothers and sisters, we stand again at the fence around the mystery of God. And we can try to peer in, and we peer as far as God has revealed to us to peer in, but we must acknowledge that there are things about the person of who God is in and of himself that we cannot fully comprehend. And you know what our response should be when we come across glorious passages like this one? Our response should be blessing and honor and glory and power belong to our God forever and ever. Our response should be doxology, worship. We should be like Calvin. John Calvin, when he was teaching uh, his students in one of their theology courses, they came to a point in discussing the doctrine of God in which they could go no further. And Calvin knew this, and he simply shut his book, and he said, let us sing the doxology. That is precisely what we should do. When we meet God himself, we do not question God. Woe to the man who rejects God because he cannot fully comprehend him. This passage should not be caused to reject God. This passage is caused to bow down and worship our incomprehensible God. That should be our response. Brothers and sisters, let us joyfully own uh, and be proud of the triunity of our God. That we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all fully God, all sharing the same one divine essence, all equal in power and authority and wisdom, all uh, existing from eternity and yet distinct in person. What an amazing God we serve and we worship. That's the second thing I want us to see uh, is that Jesus is the image of the Father. That brings us to the third thing, and that is that Jesus is God. 
And I know we've just seen that. And in one sense, uh, it's hard to talk about these things without talking about everything all at once. Uh, How do you talk about the Trinity without talking about the deity of Christ? And how do you talk about the deity of Christ without at the same time talking about the Trinity? Uh, But I just want, the reason I made this its own point is because I want you to see explicitly from John himself in his gospel, and John's gospel is one of the highest Christological gospels in terms of uh, the deity of Christ. I want to give you three ways that John explicitly displays Jesus as God. And so the first way, uh, the first proof we've already seen, and that's this, that Jesus takes for himself the divine name. God told Moses, the name by which I will be known is the great I am. I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me. Seven times in John's gospel, we run across what are called, what we call Jesus's great I am statements. Probably the, the most uh, incredible of which we've already seen in John chapter 8, that before Abraham was, I am. So that's the first thing is that Jesus takes for himself the divine name. The second thing is that Jesus himself claims equality with God. Out of Jesus' own mouth, he proclaims to be equal with God the Father. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus is again healing on the Sabbath, as he often did to uh, rile up the, uh, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees begin persecuting him and telling them that he shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be uh, healing on the Sabbath. And he replies, if you look at verse 17, with the words, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And then look at John, the gospel writer's commentary on what's going on here in verse 18. John writes this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What a proof of Jesus's deity right here in John chapter 5. John understood perfectly the implications of what Jesus had said. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, John pens this evaluation. Jesus was making himself equal with God. And notice, Jesus doesn't back down. It's not like once Jesus realizes what his audience had uh, understood him to be saying that he kind of backs off and says, whoa, 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 I never meant to imply that I'm anything more than just an ordinary man. I never meant to imply that I'm equal with God. It's not what he says. He actually goes on to defend his equality. Look at verse 22. He says, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son even as they honor the Father. Crystal clear, isn't it? Incredible things from John's gospel. That's the second thing. He claims equality with God. The third proof that John gives us that Jesus is God is that Jesus is worshiped as God. He's worshiped as God. And we could go a couple places. We could go to chapter 9, where Jesus heals the man uh, born blind Uh, He heals him, restores his sight, and at the end of chapter 9, it says that he bowed down and worshipped him. But I want to go to chapter 20, verse 28, which is in many ways the climax of John's gospel. And by this point, chapter 20, by this point in the gospel narrative, Jesus has died, he has raised, and he has appeared to the disciples as really alive. He appeared to all the disciples but one. Which one was it? Anyone know? 
Thomas, right? Thomas was missing from the corporate gathering of the church. And there's a sermon there for why you shouldn't miss church. You might miss Jesus. And so, um, got to take opportunity to say that whenever you can, you know. Um, the other disciples, so they tell Thomas, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, we don't know. It's kind of a mystery of, of uh, the Bible. Um, but so the other disciples then see Thomas later on in the week, I guess, and they tell him, we've seen the Lord. The Lord is really alive. He really has raised from the dead. We saw him. We touched him. And what does Thomas say? Unless I put my fingers in the holes of his hand and unless I touch his side, I will never believe. It's kind of a black mark on Thomas. It's, it's kind of Thomas's Peter moment. Um, what happens next? Next week, Jesus shows up again. And guess what? Thomas didn't make the same mistake twice. He decides to come to church uh, this Lord's Day. And Jesus, rather than any, Jesus could have rebuked Thomas for his unbelief and his, his stubbornness in refusing to believe, but he's so gracious. And he says, here I am, Thomas. Put your fingers in the, in the holes of my hands. Here's my side. Touch me and see that it is I. What is Thomas's response? Verse 28 of chapter 20. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas recognizes that standing before him is the Lord whom he owes his allegiance and the God to whom he owes his worship. Now, if Jesus were not God, what would have, what would have, uh, I can't talk, what would have been his response if Jesus were not God? Think about how other people in the Bible respond when they are wrongfully worshiped. I think of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14. Uh, They're doing incredible things. They're doing signs and wonders. And it says that the people begin to try to offer sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And what does Paul and Barnabas do? They rip their clothes. And they say, we are men just like you. Or I think of John in the book of Revelation when he's just overwhelmed by the incredible visions that are being revealed to him by the angel that he actually falls down and begins to worship the angel And the angel cries out, you must not do that. Uh, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. Worship God. That's the proper response. When someone tries to worship someone who's not God, they stop them and they point them to worship the only one worthy of worship. What does Jesus do? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus commends Thomas's faith. Jesus commends what he has said because what he has declared is absolutely correct. Jesus is God in the flesh, and we all ought to joyfully join Thomas in proclaiming to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's the third thing. The fourth thing I want us to see is that Jesus is creator Jesus is creator. If you turn back, if you're not there already, turn back to John chapter 1. John tells us in verse 3 of Jesus' absolute sovereignty over creation. Look at verse 3 with me. John writes, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now think about that. Anything in the category made was made by Jesus. And we, we could even do uh, a visual uh, display of this, and we could have two columns. 
And one could have at its top the, the word unmade, uncreated. And we could put one thing in there, God. And then on this other side, this other column, it could say made. And we could sit around here all day naming things that have been made. Stars, galaxies, planets, men, angels, demons, the devil, everything that exists besides God, outside of God himself, was made, and we could put on all of them a stamp that says, made by Jesus. You know, everything that we own, all of our clothing that says made in China, or made in America, made in Europe, that's only half true. (laughs) Everything should have a parenthesis under it that says, ultimately made by Jesus. Because everything is made by Jesus. We might take what he's made and make different things, but we can't make our own stuff to make things. (laughs) Only Jesus has made that stuff. Talk about the opening chapter of John's gospel, a high view of the sovereignty of Jesus. And how important, again, this is for us to teach to our kids. These are things that are so foundational for us to teach our kids at a young age. My wife Stephanie and I, uh, we have a daughter and now a son, and our daughter's about uh, two and five months, and her name's Jerusha. And uh, we catechize Jerusha. And we ask her often, you know, Jerusha, who made you? And she'll say, God. And we'll say, good, good, yeah. What else did God make? And she'll reply, all things. And we'll say, good, that's right, God made all things. And then just to make sure that she's kind of grasping and understanding what all things means, we'll kind of expand on that. And we'll say, okay, who made mommy? And she'll say, God. And we'll say, good, who, who made the river? God. Who made the trees? God. Who made the house? God. Who made the sky? God. God, 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 God made everything, right? And what we're doing is we're laying a foundation in Jerusha's heart and in her mind for times when, like three weeks ago maybe, times like this. Jerusha runs into my room and she's kind of frantic and she says, Daddy, I'm scared. I said, oh, Jerusha, you're scared? What are you scared of? And she had been watching a show and there was some scary, I forget what they are, they're little dirt falls or something, um, weird, weird show that she's watching, and it frightened her. They were weird, and they were kind of creepy, and, uh, and she was scared, and she said, Daddy, I'm scared. I said, well, Jerusha, what do we do when we're scared? And she said, we trust God. I said, that's exactly what we do, Jerusha. We trust God because whatever it is you're scared of, God made it. God owns it. God is bigger than them, and they can do nothing to harm you unless God allows them to. And she'll go away, and she'll say something like, Okay, Daddy, and she'll run off, right? It's amazing how easily kids embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty, right? Uh, kids become Calvinists far, far easier than adults become Calvinists, right? Um, they just believe, all right, Dad must know what he's talking about. He says God's bigger, and I'm going to believe him, right? Just simple childlike faith. Uh, but it's amazing how easily they embrace it. But here's my point. Kids need to be taught about a great, big, sovereign Christ who made and rules the universe. We need to be taught about a great, big, sovereign Christ who made and rules the universe. Do you have anxieties today? Do you have fears? Lay your head upon the soft pillow of a Jesus who is in control. Do you have fear for the state of our country? Do you fear who's going to... I mean, the, the two candidates we have right now, we're already experiencing the judgment of God. The fact that these are the two candidates we have, that's the reality But do you have anxieties about that? Remember Proverbs 21, that Jesus holds the heart of the president, whoever it is going to be, and it's like a river by which Jesus turns however he wills. 
Jesus made the president. He made Donald Trump. He made Hillary Clinton. And he can control them to do his bidding. Jesus has not fallen off the throne. He is sitting on the throne in heaven, swaying the scepter of earth. And he rules. What a comfort. There is no replacement for a confidence in an able and sovereign Savior. I want to give you one example of this uh, from church history. John G. Patton is a, uh, was a Scottish missionary, uh, born in Scotland, and he left Scotland, had a very fruitful ministry in Scotland, but he left to go and minister literally to an island of cannibals. The island was called the New Hebrides, and it had recently been discovered. And he writes in his, uh, his, his diary of how he constantly found his life under threat that he was always being followed around by these chiefs and these tribes who didn't want them there, and they're always making attacks on his life to take him out. And he records numerous illustrations of how the Lord just at the last minute uh, uh, delivers him seemingly against all odds. Uh, I want to read you just two brief entries from his journal, and I want you to listen particularly how his confidence in a sovereign Jesus sustained him. Listen to this first entry. He writes, A wild chief followed me around today for four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Listen to the second entry. Once, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe, but a chief snatched a spade with which I had been working, and he dexterously defended me from instant death. And then he comments on that, and he says, life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And this is what he says. He says, and yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed to Calvary and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. That is what the confidence of a sovereign Jesus does. His hand was trembling but he knew that his trembling hand was clasped in the hand that was once nailed, but has now ascended into heaven, holding the scepter of the universe. The fifth and final thing I want us to see is that Jesus is the redeemer of sinners. Jesus is the redeemer of sinners. And I want to linger here briefly as our last point, because this may be the most stunning thing we see from this passage. Look at verses four and five with me. John writes, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the primary thing that John wants us to see, that John is devoted to showing us, that God himself, the word who was God, became man to redeem sinful humanity. The glorious Son of the Father, whom we have been admiring as we've been looking at his sovereignty, as his, uh, at his deity, the one who is worthy to be worshipped, stooped to enter his creation. 
The one who, as Isaiah said, weighed the mountains in a scale, entered into this world to walk upon those same mountains. This is a profound truth, brothers and sisters. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is uh, the, the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God himself, because we could not save ourselves from our sins, God himself condescended to become a man to redeem us from our sins. Verse 14 of John 1 should cause all of us to bow down in worship. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Look at John's description of Jesus in verse 4. He says, in him was life. That is not referring to just any life, any ordinary life. But when John says in Jesus was life, he's contrasting it with death that is in the world. This life is spiritual, redemptive, sin-forgiving life. Some commentators think that John is still talking about Jesus' life-giving power at the original creation. But I think a better way of understanding John's language here is that John's not talking about original creation John is talking about new creation in which Jesus came into the world and he came to redeem this dark and dead world of sinners by giving his life and his light. The end of verse 5 supports that. The end of verse 5 says, The light shined in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Now, perhaps you're here and you're new to Christianity and you're not familiar with what the Bible teaches, what the Bible says, and these words may seem perplexing of what is all this talk about light? What is all this talk about darkness? Why, why does John use these metaphors to talk about uh, different aspects of Jesus' coming into the world? Let me speak to you. John is using these metaphors of dark, uh, darkness. He is contrasting this evil world that is dead in its trespasses and sins, that is in rebellion against God, he's contrasting it with the light and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is, as John will call him later in his gospel, the light of the world. And as you read on, if you were just to begin this morning reading through John's gospel, as you read on, you will soon discover that this glorious Christ, this beautiful Uh, one who is worthy of our worship, who's worthy of our praise, who's worthy of our service, he comes into this world and he is not received by the world. He's not adored by the world he created. He's not honored as the king of creation that he is. But rather, when the light of the world comes into this world, he's met by darkness and by opposition and by hatred. Look down at verse 10 of chapter 1. John writes, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's what we've seen. Yet the world did not know him. Brothers and sisters, don't let familiarity of that verse rob you of the shock that should give us. That God is despised by the very world he created. That the one who created all things is hated by his creatures. My friend, this is what the Bible calls sin. The Bible says that we are all dead in our sins, that we are born in rebellion against God, and that is why we need life from Jesus Christ. It is because we are spiritually dead. You might be here this morning, and you might be physically breathing, 
Your lungs might be doing their job and giving you air. Your heart might be pumping blood to your body physically. But in terms of your spiritual state before God, we are all by nature and apart from the grace of God in Christ, dead spiritually. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And John will go on in chapter 3 to describe all of us by nature as lovers of darkness. And that is so important for us to grasp. We are dead in sin, but it is not a stagnant deadness. We are actively loving darkness. We are actively loving sin. We are actively loving all that sets itself up against God, and we are actively hating the light because the light shines on us, and it exposes our wickedness. It exposes our unrighteousness. And left to ourselves, by nature, what do we want to do? We want to snuff out the light. We don't want the light because the light reveals just how dirty we are, just how unclean before God we are. That's exactly what men did to Jesus, the light of the world. And yet John says in verse 5 of chapter 1, the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. Those are words of triumph. Those are words of hope that the light overcame the darkness, not the other way around. Even though it appeared as though darkness had won. You see, Jesus wants his readers to know from the very beginning of his gospel that as you read on, you are going to read about the most tragic irony of human history. This Jesus is going to be opposed by his own people. This Jesus is going to be mocked and maligned and challenged by the religious leaders of his day. And you're even going to read eventually he's going to be put on a cross and be crucified at the hands of Jews and Gentiles because they hate the light. But John is saying right from the beginning, make no mistake. They may have killed Jesus, but the darkness has not overcome the light because this is the God-man. This is the creator of all that is, and God never fails to accomplish his purposes. When Jesus died upon the cross and the world of darkness rejoiced and thought that it had won, that it had finally ultimately snuffed out this one who is full of light in the providence of God and in the sovereignty of God, God was saving his people. In the wisdom of God, the light overcame the darkness by allowing the darkness to overcome the light. As men wickedly crucified Jesus, as they mocked him, as they called for Pilate to crucify him, God was in his sovereignty redeeming his people. Because Jesus dying on the cross was not just a cosmic accident, but it was the activity of God the Father bringing to pass his plan to save his people from all eternity. Because when Jesus died, when Jesus was crucified, he stood there as a substitute for sinners. He hung upon the cross and God the Father poured out upon him the wrath of God for the sins of his people. God was satisfying his justice, the justice that each and every one here deserves. We are all guilty before God. We are all full of darkness, and God requires payment. And the payment for sin is death, eternal death. And Jesus was dying upon the cross as a substitute so that 
when I trust in Christ, God can say to a sinner like Kyle, pardoned, forgiven. His penalty of death has been paid because Jesus died in his place. He can say that my justice is satisfied and I no longer have to punish you because I satisfied completely my justice in my son. And for everyone who trusts Christ, that is the promise that's held out to you. You can be forgiven of your sins this very moment if you cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you stop trusting in yourself for righteousness, if you stop thinking that you're not dark, and that you're light, and that you're good enough that God will receive you, and you do away with any type of reliance upon yourself, and you put all of your hope and all of your reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him for His grace, God promises you you eternal life, that you'll experience the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God. So I call you, trust Christ. Don't linger any longer. Cast yourself upon Him. Know what it is to be a child of God and no longer an enemy of God. Know what it is to experience the adoption of the Spirit, that you now relate to God as Father, who loves you and who is for you and who will bring you finally to glory. Trust Christ. Brothers and sisters, doesn't what we've seen in our first four points this morning make the death of Jesus all the more precious for us? That Jesus' death was not an accident. The creator of the universe does not wind up upon a cross by accident, but by willing design. Jesus was not helpless to stop his murderers. Indeed, he's the one who says in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And he says, I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Who can say that but the Lord of glory? that Jesus has the ability to lay his life down and he has the ability to raise his life up. Jesus is the one who, when he was being arrested, told Peter, when Peter pulls out his little sword, right, trying to uh, keep Jesus from being arrested, he says, put your sword back in its sheath. If I wanted, could I not call upon legions of angels to come and rescue me and stop my murderers? And here's the point, brothers and sisters, he didn't, though he could he didn't. Brothers and sisters, behold the glory of our God, that the one who made and governs men submits himself to be killed by men. The one who created the forest with his finger submits himself to be hung upon a tree. Brothers and sisters, behold the infinite love of God for you this morning in the gospel that the light of the world was willingly crushed by darkness. As his father poured out his wrath upon him, the holy and righteous one, who did not deserve wrath, he deserved blessing, and yet he submitted himself to it in our behalf as our substitute so that we would go free, that we would enjoy the blessing of knowing God and being restored and reconciled to God. What a glorious and magnificent Savior. What a loving God we have and serve. Friend, again, if you're not a Christian, trust Christ. I hope the love of Christ, even as we've seen it uh, just in, in many ways inadequately, uh, there's no way we can do justice to these verses. May the love of Christ constrain you. May you be drawn to him that such a holy God would care and love his creation, that he would enter into it to redeem them.
I want to close uh, just by reading one verse of a hymn. I'm not sure if you sing it here. We sing it at Emmanuel, and it's one of my favorite hymns, uh, and it's about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's called Meekness and Majesty, and it really uh, uh, summarizes well uh, what we've seen, that Jesus is perfect God and yet perfect man. And so I want to read just one verse from this, and then I'll close in prayer. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. Brothers and sisters, may we bow down and worship, because this is our God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would work and minister by the power of your Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would take my feeble efforts at unpacking and opening up the glories of this passage and that you would own them by your Spirit. We pray, Father, you would work in the hearts of your people. We pray that you would cause them to have bigger views of Jesus and that they would have bigger faith in Jesus. And even as we walk through a world of uncertainty, that they would cling to him, even as John Patton so uh, well showed us in his trust in the sovereign Savior. We pray, Lord, that all of us would be strengthened in our obedience, and that we would be strengthened in our resolve to honor him and to worship him uh, as our God. And so, Father, we pray that you'd be with us. Work in the hearts of any who are not believing in Christ. We pray that you would draw them powerfully to him, that they too would enjoy uh, the forgiveness of their sins and that they would enjoy knowing this Savior. And we ask it for your glory, Father, and in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.